A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Hi, Chris. Good morning. Um, good to talk again. Uh, I think today's discussion will obviously have to be dominated by the Windsor framework, uh, the deal that Rishi Shunak has done with Ursula von der Leyen and the European Commission regarding the status of Northern Ireland and the status of the Northern Ireland Protocol. I got a lot of criticism last week over expressing total disinterest in what was going on in Northern Ireland. I guess my perspective on that is that I just got totally fed up of uh, the political machinations of, you know, what's going on, will they, won't they, etc., etc. But a deal has now been reached, so um, I'm now prepared to talk about it, hopefully in a more coherent way. Not sure how long this discussion uh, will take, but if we have time, um, I'd also like to go back and discuss some comments I got online over the weekend um, in relation to this generation relative to previous generations in Ireland. Um, you know, the the argument about whether this generation will have things, are having things much tougher than our generation, for example. Um, that's something we could talk about for two hours, but I think it's I think it's a really interesting discussion about where Ireland is going. There's lots of other small bits and pieces going on, but I think we will start with the Windsor framework. And from my perspective, um, obviously the objectives here would be um, a restoration of the Northern Ireland Assembly and the executive, um, a a, a reconstitution of the North-South Ministerial Council, and then... um, ongoing efforts to try and make the Belfast Good Friday Agreement work. And of course, over the last couple of years of Brexit and opposition to the Northern Ireland Protocol, 
you know, all, all of those issues have been seriously undermined. So getting that stuff back on track um, is clearly the, the huge political motivation behind all of this. Um, I, I, I suppose looking at the Northern Ireland, the, the Windsor agreement framework, excuse me, uh, there's lots of stuff in there, but I think the, the couple that stand out for me would be number one, that goods coming from Great Britain to Northern Ireland will now go into one of two lanes. If the goods are destined for Northern Ireland, they will go through the green lane and will not be subject to any um, customs checks. And if goods are destined for uh, the Republic of Ireland or the European Union, uh, they will go through the red lane and will be subject to checks. Um, I suppose from a very practical perspective, I just wonder, um, you know, if something does go through the green lane, what's to stop it? from actually ending up in the Republic of Ireland. Um, I'm a little bit confused about that, but uh, perhaps they understand what they are doing. Um, another issue that strikes me as significant is that the same food will now be sold in Belfast as in Birmingham. Basically, it will be a UK internal market. And um, I think very importantly, from the perspective of uh, the DUP people, particularly Northern Ireland, um, the ban on chilled sausages coming into Northern Ireland from Great Britain will now be scrapped. Um, that's That seems important to some people. Um, and for food products coming in, if you can confirm the goods stay in Northern Ireland, no checks and there'll be no veterinary or plant inspectors required. Another issue relates, relates to taxation. I mean, the Nor Northern Ireland will now be able to benefit from um, UK-wide changes on alcohol duty or VAT rates and so on. So that does give more taxation autonomy to Northern Ireland. Uh, well, sorry, it, it doesn't actually, but it, 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 it makes it part of the Great Britain and United Kingdom tax regime, which is what obviously was required by some people. Um, and then the, the, the obvious area of contention is the role of the European Court of Justice. Um, the Northern Ireland Assembly will be able to apply an emergency break on new or amended EU goods rules, provided they can get 30 members of the Assembly coming from two at least two different parties to agree to apply this emergency break. So that's seen as something else that potentially gives Northern Ireland um, uh, a, a bit more freedom from EU laws, but that there is definitely, um, and listening to media commentary, there is very definitely um, a strong sense of disagreement amongst some Neanderthal members of the DUP about the role of the European Court of Justice. Um, the other, the final point would be that um, pets will now be able to um, move freely from Great Britain into Northern Ireland if the owner can confirm that the pet is not going to move into the European Union. So does that mean on the border north of Dundalk and uh, they'll be checking pets? I don't know, Jim. There are, I think, a number of details still yet to be worked out. We, I, I haven't read every single document associated with this. Um, I've read quite a few. I would point, make a number of points. One is the EU has gone much further with its concessions than I thought it ever would. It certainly has gone much further in terms of its offers to Sunak than it ever did with Johnson. As you said to me earlier, before we came on air, that says more about Sunak than anything else. They trust him. They just didn't trust Johnson. 
and various EU officials and politicians have made that abundantly plain that they just simply did not trust Boris Johnson, whereas something resembling trust has begun to build between Brussels and London now via, via Sunak, via Johnson's absence, which I think speaks volumes, because you've got to remember that Johnson is on the comeback trail. We must not forget that. The reaction of the DUP has been absolutely fascinating. Jim, you might remember in the last couple of podcasts, I bent over backwards to try and see things from their perspective, just in the interests of trying to be fair. Indeed. I've made the point that they did have a point when they said that they weren't consulted. I'm afraid my sympathies for the DUP all but disappeared last night when I watched Sammy Wilson's reaction to all of this. I suppose in the round, I realised that nothing will ever satisfy these people. Even if you gave them everything that they asked for, they would still ask for more. The specific things that Wilson said were in response, firstly, to the Director General of the British Confederation of British Industry, a guy that appears to know what he's talking about and clearly has connections with Northern Ireland, and the BBC's Newsnight editor, Ben Shu, who talked about the benefits that the protocol has already brought the Northern Irish economy. And I know you've talked about this, you've written about this, that if you look at the statistics of the Northern Irish economy relative to GB, you can see that it's been doing much better, significantly better, actually. It's now bigger than it was pre-pandemic, which is not what you can't say that about the UK as a whole. And there are other economic statistics that one would quote to say that it certainly looks like being in both the UK single market and the European single market has been a benefit for the Northern Irish economy. Samuel Wilson said, no, it hasn't. And that was because, he said, that that if Britain, GB, is in the position of being outside the single market, it can still export to the single market, which is perfectly true, of course. But of course, what he didn't say was that exporting to the single market, being outside it, is much more difficult. And lots of British businesses are experiencing difficulty. The implication that he was trying to give was that if Northern Ireland was to come out of the European single market, its exporters would be in the same position as GB exporters, which is true. But the idea that they would then have no difficulties selling into that European single market is just bonkers. It's just nuts. It was just just absolutely wrong. So he rejected, he explicitly rejected the idea that uh, all of this has been and will be an economic benefit for, for Northern Ireland. He was given the opportunity by the interviewer on Newsnight to say a diff- to tell a different message a different message which is that it's more than economics in fact it's not even about economics that this is about identity about social issues about political issues it's about sovereignty it's about blood it's about all sorts of other things to, other than economics but he didn't take that opportunity he took on the idea that being in the european single market is a good thing and he really trashed the republic jim he said that Whatever difficulties we'd have with the Republic, I'm paraphrasing slightly, whatever difficulties we'd have with the Republic if we were outside the EU single market would be overcome because of the Republic's need for our milk. (laughs) As an economist, Jim, and as an economist with a dairy farming background, can you comment on this milk point? No, that's absolute rubbish. Um, I mean, the the reality is that um, Ireland is more than self-sufficient in milk. The issue was that some of the dairy co-ops 
bring milk over and back border for processing. So the plant is in the south where, you know, the, the, the milk is delivered to and then it may be moved over the border for processing and then maybe exported back into the Republic of Ireland so that there there is movement of milk both sides of the border. But to suggest that Ireland needs Northern Ireland because of a deal with Northern Ireland because of milk is utter rubbish. You know, there there is no validity. I mean, and I I, I, I take you on the Sammy Wilson piece. Um, I heard an interview with Ian Paisley Jr. last night along pretty similar lines. And funny, I had dinner with Ian Paisley Jr. some years back. His father was still alive. Um, I found him a most rational, charming individual. And I remember thinking at the time, the future of unionist politics in Northern Ireland is in safe hands with people like him. But obviously, um, a lot has changed since then. And um, the, the, you know, the position of the unions that you describe um, and that we observe is is absolutely bizarre. I think really, and, and this is really where I'm wondering how it pans out. I think at the end of the day, to restore the assembly and the executive, you know, um, because of the last election and the percentage of votes going to both sides, um, Sinn Féin will have first minister. But I'm not sure the DUP will ever go back into an assembly without having the position of first minister. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but it just strikes me. It's it's, it's absolutely the kernel to all of this and um, the DUP unwilling to accept the democratic will of the people in Northern Ireland. Yeah, and of course, the break that you alluded to in in your introduction to to this piece, uh, which is the idea that 30 MLAs from at least two different parties can effectively introduce a veto on any new law introduced by the European Union. This idea is that you've got the existing state of European law, which going forward now, post the Windsor arrangement or the Windsor framework, whatever it's called, will, of course, be amended by Europe as it evolves its legal framework. New laws will be introduced, old laws will be repealed, that sort of thing. And so we we get this idea that some kind of sovereignty over new laws is restored to, to Northern Ireland. And Sammy Wilson objected even to that. He said the problem with that is, of course, is that we might say that we don't like this, but then the UK government makes the final decision and then has to go through a process with the European Union within some joint committee in order to be able to implement the decision, the will of the Irish people, the Northern Irish people. And so, I mean, this guy that wants to be a total UK person, a UK citizen, a British citizen through and through, is objecting to the fact that the UK government has a say in this. You couldn't make this stuff up. But that break is very important. There is precedent in the European Union for this. You might know that Norway is a member of the single market, but is not a member of the European Union. It has a similar arrangement. Yeah. The right of reservation, I think it's called. Yeah. And I think it's only very well. I think it's only been used once. That'd be Mm. right. Yeah, Uh, that's all. And so in practical terms, this thing isn't used very often because... Frankly, an awful lot of the European rules and regulations around trade, because that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about criminal legislation or legislation for how people uh, drive on the roads and stuff like that. We're talking about rules around trade in goods, actually. This is a goods arrangement, not even services for the most part. Um, So it's quite narrow. And as the EU said, I think probably only about 3% of European law in the round applies 
in this particular case to trade with Northern Ireland from a practical point of view. So I think that it's a big deal. And I think that the European Union has gone a long way. And I think that the DUP, with their reservations that they have expressed so far, we still don't know what they're going to say finally. And let's leave that open and acknowledge that it's open. But so far, their reaction to me is is being extremely churlish. And frankly, I regret my efforts to bend over backwards to see their point of view. And I wish I'd taken your your perspective, Jim, and not bothered me asked to try to get to grips with all of this stuff because it clearly wasn't worth it. But the one thing I wanted to, to actually say, which hasn't been discussed so far, and before I get onto that, I want to mention that at the end of this week, we're going to have a deep dive into the issues that have arisen between now and then, because I do think that a lot of things are going to happen, not least the DUP's official reaction and other reactions. The Americans are important in all of this, of course. Will Joe Biden announce a visit to the UK on the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement? All of that stuff could happen in the next few days. So when the dust settles, we're going to talk to Professor Chris Gray about his perspective. He's an absolute Brexit expert in general, and unlike both of us, really has got to grips with the Northern Ireland Protocol at an early stage. And we'll have lots of interesting things. Chris has been on the show before once or twice, always a popular guest. And he's kindly agreed at the end of this week to record a pod with us. So that's to flag that, that we will be returning to this subject. But one of the things I'm going to ask him is about my hypothesis, about what this means for the UK and Brexit. Because the angle that I'm taking, the perspective that I'm looking at this through, is that everybody in the UK is sick to death of the current situation. Um, Strikes, the NHS, all that good stuff. Um, But they're particularly, particularly sick to death and wish that it would go away. And that's Brexit. Nobody wants to talk about Brexit. Um, Everybody from me to Keir Starmer to Rishi Sunak, everybody is just sick to death of Brexit. And of course, this deal doesn't put Brexit to bed but it gives us an excuse, a reason to believe that maybe Brexit finally is done and we can stop talking about it, at least for a while until the next problem arises. That's not to say that the problems with trade between GB and the EU haven't gone away. It's just that we can pretend they've gone away. It's just that we don't have to talk about this stuff anymore. And I think the sense of relief, the psychological release of stress and tension from not having to think about Brexit anymore, at least for a while, is quite real. I feel it in myself. I I really don't want to even think or talk about Brexit ever again. And the sense of release, personal release from from that anxiety is palpable. And I I, I think a lot of people in the UK are feeling that. And the political implication of that psychological, slightly strange thing that I've just described is that I think Sunak could get a big bounce in the polls. I don't know what you think about that, Jim. Yeah, I mean, I, I was going to ask you that question, what, what you thought um, it means for Rishi Sunak. Um, as you said earlier on, I mean, the European Commission certainly has given a lot more leeway than it would ever possibly do with Boris Johnson. And that comes down to an issue of trust. Um, I have to say, I have been broadly positive about Sunak since he took over. Um, at, at least from the chaos of Boris and Liz Truss, he did represent some semblance of stability, um, taking over an incredibly difficult situation with a seriously divided, poisonous political system um, and so on. So, yeah, I mean, I think Sunak will come out of this looking good. It's it's not to say that 
you know, he will save his political career, at least the political career of the Tory party ahead of the next general election. Uh, but it definitely is a tick in the right box for Sunak. I think he's done well on this. And um, as you say, I think the, the, the secret of successful negotiation really is trust on both sides. And there appears to be a greater element of that. But how is he going to handle the arch Brexiteers, the Eurogroup in the, um, the Tory party? Um, I've, I've heard interviews with Jacob Rees-Mogg and a few others over the last uh, 24 hours and they seem a little bit agnostic about this at the moment. Um, I, I guess what they finally do or vote on this will come down to political considerations rather than the the merit of the deal that was done yesterday. So I guess it all goes back to politics. But how do you see those Irish Brexiteers actually behaving over the coming days and ahead of a vote whenever it's going to happen? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Well, at least one of them has behaved in an extraordinary fashion. If you can get hold of it, I'd recommend looking at a clip of the interview with Steve Baker who is a minister, junior minister in the Northern Ireland office and was a leading member of the ERG. I think he might have even chaired it or deputy chaired it for a while. Uh, the ERG, of course, is the European Research Group, which is hardline Brexiteer wingnuts, as I call them. And the interview with him is one of the most extraordinary moments in politics that I have ever seen. Um, first of all, he was crying. He was actually shedding a tear not blubbing, but there was clearly, and he admitted there were tears on his face, and the interviewer asked him why he was so emotional. And the first thing was he really, really welcomed the deal. He praised Sunak to the heavens for his negotiating skills, for the brilliance of the deal that Sunak has brought home. And so this is the self-described hard man of Brexit. Baker was asked about that label. You used to be called the hard man of Brexit. Why are you doing this? And he explained that this was a label given to him by a newspaper, that he made a mistake at the end of the day in allowing it to be used. And he said it was a mistake to allow it to be used, to allow that label hard man of Brexit to be applied to him. He regretted it deeply. And he talked about what happened to him a year or so ago in that he had a complete breakdown. And he said the strain of being that self-described hard man of Brexit had broken him. Really? Uh, yeah. It, it was, and he talked about his anxiety and his depression as a result of all the things that he'd had to do over the last seven years, part of which, of course, is this whole Brexit process. So it was really interesting. Look at him, a politician, unusually, being incredibly honest and incredibly honest about himself. Uh, so that that so that was a, a thing about that interview that it was just a moment in in politics and in, in in live television that was just extraordinary. 
but it was the welcome that he gave the deal. He couldn't have praised it to the heavens in in a more lavish way. He couldn't have praised Sunak more strongly. Um, so there is one a data point, if you like, one example of a more general point. I think that the the uh, right wing of the Tory party is going to be split over this. It's going to be divided. Some nutcases are, are going to die on this hill because they always were, were going to die on this hill of being DUP-like in their objections. And I think others will take Baker's lead. And I think my guess at the moment, it's early days, it's very early days yet, my guess is that Baker's lead will be sufficient for Sunak to get this through. We're not quite sure exactly how he's going to give Parliament the opportunity to debate this. I think that it's a done deal and that the dice that needs still to be rolled really rest with the DUP rather than the ERG and whether or not they allow Stormont to be reconstituted with the Assembly to come back. And obviously, if the Assembly doesn't come back, if they don't yep. allow it to sit, then the idea that 30 MLAs could ever veto yep. um, is moot because they, they won't be sitting. So, they, so It, this, it this makes moot. all this pretty meaningless. Uh, but nevertheless, um, that will be seen to be the DUP's problem. Um, Northern Ireland will be ruled by London for the foreseeable future. That will create political vacuums into which bad actors often um, step in Northern Ireland. But that's a different story. We've seen evidence of that in recent days, actually. So that's to be regretted, to be hoped that it doesn't happen. But I do think that it's good news for Sunak and good news for his standing in the in the polls. And it could actually be good news for the economy. There's lots of people this morning saying, well, no, it's not going to be good enough for um, a resurgence in the British economy. And I understand why they say that. It's not that big a deal. But everything, we're, we're in such difficulties here, Jim. Everything that helps at the margin, particularly our psychological stakes, we're so beaten up now by everything that anything that looks positive, that has a warm glow about it, that has the word success associated with it, I think we're, you know, we might be dying people clutching at straws, but this is a straw which we are going to clutch. Yeah, and the importance of political leadership cannot be um, overestimated. At, at the end of the day, what all of this really comes down to in terms of its success related to Northern Ireland, I think, has got to do with the fact, will the DU, or the question, will the DUP be prepared to accept a return of the Assembly under a Sinn Féin First Minister Michelle O'Neill. That really is uh, the question. I certainly don't have the answer, Jim. Do you? No, no, I do. I do not. I do not. Chris, I look forward to our discussion later in the week with Chris Gray. Um, I think he'll he'll throw a lot more light on this than I certainly would be able to. Before we wrap up, a few minutes left. Um, I mentioned in my introduction the this this whole debate, and we've discussed it before about this generation vis-a-vis previous generations. And I know, um, I think we've both made the comment in relation to housing that this generation has certainly pulled the ladder up on the the, ne- the next generation, the younger generation. And I, I, I got some, as I say, online feedback over the weekend about just how bad this generation has, has it and why it's leading to all sorts of political developments and so on. And I was thinking a lot about it over the last few days and I grew up 
in Ireland in the 1970s and the 98 in the 1980s, excuse me, um, there was no employment virtually. Well, there was a bit, but not a lot of employment. And for those of us coming out of school or college, there were very few options. It was the bank. It was the public sector. There wasn't a lot else, really. Um, high levels of forced emigration. People were forced to emigrate because they couldn't get employment here. Um, this may be a slightly controversial one for some people, but the inordinate power of the Catholic Church in terms of dominating all of our lives was incredibly influential. Uh, the roads infrastructure was awful. Public transport was pretty awful. And we hear people lamenting the loss of railways and so on. But um, public transport back in the day was absolutely dreadful. And uh, as a frequent user of Dublin bus now, you know, it's a fantastic service most of the time. There are the odd hiccups, but it's it's functioning. I suppose so. It, it wasn't all great back in the 1980s. It was challenging. And indeed, in relation to housing, it was still very difficult to get on the housing ladder. I guess the, the one area that was much better was the fact uh, rents were cheaper and it was easier to rent property back then. Uh, but, you know, when I came to Dublin, um, I lived in a, a hovel that would now be would not be allowed and bed sits are no longer allowed for example so um it, it wasn't all great back then um looking at today uh, we have record levels of employment there is significant employment opportunity for young people coming out of school and college and that, and that was manifested again last week in the labor force survey results for the final quarter of last year you know the unemployment rate for the 15 to 24 year olds is is falling um long term unemployment is falling so that, that that whole labor market situation is much better. Um, there is certainly, there are issues around the housing situation. You know, it is difficult to get on the housing ladder. Um, rents are exorbitantly expensive. And that is certainly forcing some young people to leave the country, um, to leave good jobs and get out of the country. So it's it's not quite forced emigration of the variety we saw in the 1980s, but nevertheless, it exists. Job insecurity is very definitely a feature of the modern workplace, and that's not just an Irish phenomenon. Um, it's certainly evident in most countries, particularly um, the United States, the United Kingdom. Um, I guess not so much in countries like France and Germany, where the social model is still strong. The pension situation, um, many of us started work back in the day where we had a defined benefit pension scheme. Uh, some of us were foolish enough to walk away from stuff like that. But there was the defined benefit. In other words, when you retired, you got two thirds of your final salary, whereas today most pensions are defined contribution. You know, what you get out when you retire depends on how much you put in during your working life and how markets perform. So no guarantees whatsoever. Um, we have a good infrastructure today. Um, you know, people talk about the legacy of debt that we pass on to the next generation. But I think that has to be seen in the context of actually what we did with that debt and what did it achieve. And some of that debt definitely achieved significant investment in infrastructure. And if you look at the roads infrastructure, for example, you know, driving to Waterford, Cork, 
Limerick Galway today is vastly different than it was in the 1980s and 1990s. Indeed, there was a time when, for business reasons, if I had to go to Cork or Galway, I normally flew. It was generally Air Arn back in the day because uh, driving was an absolute nightmare. So there has been a significant improvement in infrastructure and public transport, as I said, is generally pretty good at this juncture. I, I think there's pluses and minuses, but to suggest that this generation has destroyed life, the next generation doesn't stack up. Yeah, and I think you're, you raise some really interesting points there. And I, I feel that I um, stand corrected on some of the things that I've said about this, because what we're talking about here is when you make a statement like life for the current generation is worse or better or the same as the previous generation, you can waffle on about it in the way that I do sometimes, which is basically no better than barroom waffle. Or you can say, OK, pr- let's be precise here. Let's dig into what you actually mean and ask the question, can we measure this? Can we actually put a metric around the answer to that question? Because if you can't, it's just waffle. It's just it's just an undergraduate or a sixth form, as I would call it, a leaving cert essay that lists all the things that are better, lists all the things that are worse. But how do you actually add it all up? How do you create a measure or, or several measures? And you and I did a lot of work about this quite, quite a few years ago now, Jim. We did a consultancy project on precisely this question, which is about quality of life. You might remember this. I do indeed, yeah. And there are lots and lots of measures. You can create an index for the quality of life, which has all sorts of things, like the things that you're talking about, state of your roads, um, the quality of your education system, the quality of your health system, and you create index numbers to measure or provide a measure of these things, combine all these index numbers into one, and you can provide quality of life indices. And we did that exercise. We got into index number theory in a big way. We tried to do it properly, and we were honest about the pitfalls, the measurement issues, the ways and the strengths and weaknesses of that approach. And then towards the end of that exercise, I remember reading a book by a Nobel Prize winning economist called Amartya Sen, called The Quality of Life. And it was a book about all of these issues that I just mentioned. And he said, if you want to short circuit all of this discussion, and actually look at one published, easily measured indicator of the quality of life of a country, of a region, of a city, it's life expectancy. Because all of the things that you're talking about, particularly education and health, but also the quality of your housing stock, the quality of your diet, the food that you're eating, all of that is an input into life expectancy. And it's a very powerful argument. And I think that that's absolutely right. But winding the tape, sorry, that's a long and sideways digression into what we're talking about. I think it's important to be reminded when when we're waffling and important to acknowledge that there are things that we can measure, there are things that we can't measure. And on this issue of whether the current generation have it better or worse than the previous generation, I think in the round, I've changed my mind because I I used to focus on that thing about they don't have pensions, their houses are more expensive, yada, yada, yada. But listening to what you just said, listening to what some of our commenters have said, I've changed my mind. I think that um, life has never been better for the current generation, particularly of Irish say, 18 to 40-year-olds compared to previous generations. That's my sense of all of the factors that you, you rightly described there. That's a controversial statement. I expect we'll get some comments about, Jim. Indeed, but, I, but I, I think it's an area that's really worth doing some work on and exploring, kind of like what we did back all those years ago on the Quality of Life Index because, um, you know, the perception that's out there obviously has a significant impact on 
uh, the political complexion of the country as well. So I'd, I'd like to explore this a little bit more. Um, Chris, one, there's, there's a lot of stuff that I think we need to get back to overcoming podcasts. Um, in relation to COVID, for example, I noticed that Hong Kong tomorrow is ending 945 days of compulsory mask wearing. Um, it's trying to reopen its economy to inward tourism again and um, next month there's a music festival and I thought I thought of you when I was reading this this morning uh, the rugby sevens are on in Hong Kong next month I remember when I worked with you back in the day you fecking off to Hong Kong to the rugby sevens and let me carry the can absolutely so um but in, in in a broader sense what's happening in hong kong kind of resonates with stuff that's happening here in ireland um a a member of nefed um martin cormican has come out with some very strong statements about ireland's approach to covid-19 and he said it was a policy that was really based on fear and he said it was a policy that really ignored the well-being of children in school, that this shutting down schools really did a disservice to children. So he, and I, I suspect we're going to hear a lot more from him over the coming weeks. And the government is going to set up some sort of commission to look into Ireland's handling of COVID to see if lessons can be learned. But um, I kind of annoyed with Cormac and stuff because to be honest, you know, he was a member of NEFET. He did he was part of a body that pushed all of these policies. So it rings a little bit hollow to me because I believed a lot of the restrictions at the time were totally over the top. Yes. And I think there's some evidence from other countries that the shutting of schools, it was a controversial issue at the time. And as data is emerging about the uh, longer term effects on children of being deprived from school, suggests that people didn't think this through when they shut the schools. Jim, we're running out of time. I think we've yes. run out of time. So this is obviously is a subject to which we will return. I wanted to talk about Ukraine today, but uh, sadly that will still be a topic for us to discuss many times in the future. So good to talk. And Super. Speak to you soon. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. hope you enjoyed it our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our substack account www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as apple and spotify if you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements you can sign up to our substack account comments and feedback are much appreciated 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.